If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. It's fair to say that Winston Churchill looms large in the modern imagination. Everyone from Fidel Castro to George W. Bush has cited him as an exemplar in times of crisis. In his new book, Churchill's Shadow, Geoffrey Wheatcroft acknowledges the leader's wartime triumphs while pulling few punches when it comes to his personal flaws. Geoffrey joined Spencer Mizzen to discuss the book and explain why he believes the world's continuing obsession with Churchill to be downright dangerous. Jeffrey, you begin your book by describing how, as a politics-obsessed teenager, you witnessed an, an elderly Winston Churchill make him one of his final appearances in the House of Commons back in the summer of 1963. Now, you write, what I couldn't have guessed then was how large he would still loom so long after his death. And, I mean, that basically is my first question. Why does a man who died more than half a century ago, who was born at the height of the Victorian era, remain to us now in the 21st century the subject of so much intense debate? Why are we as a nation so obsessed by Winston Churchill? Well, because of 1940, of course. I mean, everything goes back to then. I mean, the, the, the closer you look at his career... Uh, which not everyone has done, and the, and the more objectively you look at it, you see that um, um, he spent 40 years in politics up to 1939, which was described once in, in a rather good book published 50 years ago as a portrait in failure. And it was said by another historian, Paul Addison, that if he died in early 1939, he would now be remembered as the most interesting failure in early 20th century British politics. And almost by an accident of history, he became prime minister at the the crucial moment of May, May 1940, a unique, unprecedented and unrepeatable moment. And and there were no other circumstances in which he could ever have become uh, prime minister. And for a year, his leadership of the country was extraordinary and heroic, and I've said so and indeed changed the course of history, although that was much less true later in the war. But but he, he became, he, he was transformed 
uh, almost as if by alchemy in one of the most uh, du- not dubious, but certainly disliked and despised politicians or distrusted, I should say, uh, of his age into this extraordinary national hero. And, and this, this is the first problem I, I tried to address, and it was put extraordinarily well by the late Sir Michael Howard, who died almost two years ago, who was a revered friend of mine, uh, who had been a schoolboy in 1940, and then in 1943 was a, a lieutenant in the Coldstream Guards and won a military cross at Salerno before he became a famous and great historian. Um, and, and professor of modern history at Oxford and much else. And he said, the problem uh, for the historian is not, as so many Americans seem to think, and one could add that they've been encouraged to think this by the the brigade of Churchill worshippers, why uh, Churchill was ignored for so long, but how it was uh, that a man with such a dubious background and such a disastrous track record could have emerged in 1940 as the saviour of his country. So that's the first question I've tried to examine. Uh, but but because of the that heroic moment in 1940, uh, Churchill was endowed with all, already an almost mythical stature. And so that... Uh, by 1945, he was acclaimed as the leader of humanity. He wrote an extremely uh, misleading six-volume history of the Second World War and made a great deal of money. He remained leader of the Conservative Party, most regrettably in my view, um, after the war and became prime minister of a pretty unsatisfactory government from 1950 to 55, by which time I was very conscious of him as a little boy. And then uh, his, he died at the age of 90 in 1965. And he, he had already passed out of the realms of conventional history to become a, 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 a legendary figure, as his wife once called him. But she didn't realize that a legend, in the strict sense of the word, is a, 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 a figure of... Um, mythical state stat, status, who may or may or may not or may not even have existed, and and his and the fifty years since his death, fifty six years by now, have been quite extraordinary in the in the development, especially in America, of the Churchill cult, but not only in America, um, and and the way that he has become um, a, a, a superhuman hero who overshadows everything else and is continually invoked, especially by Americans. And it's a curious fact that Churchill has become, for many Americans, their greatest national hero, greater than Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt. Or uh, he wasn't, after all, American. Um, um, And the consequences of this, in my view, have also been extremely damaging, not least because he's been invoked again and again for disastrous military enterprises culminating in Iraq. When George W. Bush um, cited Churchill, quoted him daily while standing in front of the bust of Churchill in the White House Oval Office, and we know what the consequences of that has been.
Um, and, and so that was my second task, was how, how did this Churchill cult emerge and, and what its consequences have been. And it's perfectly possible to admire Churchill um, uh, for his heroic leadership in 1940 uh, without uh, treating him as this, this near godlike figure. Um, and when I say it's not just the word legendary is interesting because it means mythical in the literal sense. Um, and about 20 years ago, the Italian writer Umberto Eco was much amused by a survey which found that nearly a quarter of English schoolchildren thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. And in a sense, that's what he's become. He's become this this uh, character like um, Robin Hood, who, who, who may or more, King Arthur, who may or may not really have existed. And he's become extremely difficult for that reason, uh, to analyze and discuss in objective terms. Um, um, uh, did, uh, the, my book has just been published in America, and um, it's had an extremely gratifying response there, rather to my surprise, because there is this veneration of Churchill in America. Um, one flattering review of my book in the New York Times ends by saying it is the best indictment of Churchill yet written. Well, I, I, was, I don't want to complain about a nice review. It's bad enough complaining about uh, uh, nasty reviews, but but I never set out to write an indictment or a hostile account. I was trying to uh, penetrate through the layers of myth um, and, and myth making which have surrounded Churchill, especially since his death. But what do you say to the contention that all countries create patriotic heroes, and that? You know, there's nothing particularly unusual about Britain forging one out of Winston Churchill. And that, you know, actually it's pretty understandable given the lead role he played in this critical episode in, in modern British history that he should be lionised. Well, of course it's right that he should be admired for what he did um, 76 years ago. Uh, and, and as I repeatedly said that, it is also true, as you've just said, that Every country creates its its national heroes, and it also every every country also um, creates what an Italian politician Giovanni Giolitti, at the beginning of the last century, once in a very interesting phrase called "beautiful national legends," um, and, and it was it was even more interesting because of the context. He was prime minister at the time, and he was explaining why he didn't want the Italian state archives to be opened to scholars whose prying investigations might serve to undermine the beautiful national legends. And, and, and it's particularly true of the Second World War um, and, and the way that every country which engaged in it has created its own legends about that war. Ch Churchill was not even possibly the most remarkable mythmonger. That, that, that title could go to Charles de Gaulle because he created a quite extraordinary myth that the French had been resolute in their uh, determination to defy the German occupation and then to overthrow the yoke of the Germans. 
um, and and that they were all essentially united behind de Gaulle from 1940 onwards when he came to London and made his first famous broadcast. In fact, very few French people indeed rallied to de Gaulle at that time. But by the end of the war, um, I mean, it was, he was he himself was condemned to death by the Vichy government for treason. But by the end of the war, it was like that a very old jingle from Elizabethan times, I think. Treason doth never prosper. What's the reason? When treason prospers, none dare call it treason. And by 1945, in his case, de Gaulle had created this myth of, the, of free France uh, and the liberation led by himself, which was very difficult for the French to uh, come to terms with. And indeed, it took them a very long time. And we've been doing the same thing with uh, with Churchill. Um, I guess that one of the things that you write in the book that some people will find most controversial is that when it comes to the, the issues of race and empire, Churchill's views were, as so you say, already retrograde by the standards of his age. Now, some people have and will take issue with, with this statement, won't they? I mean, what do you base this assertion on? I mean, what made him, in your opinion, more retrograde than the standards of his age? Well, there's no question about it, in my view. I mean, he he, he continued um, to his opposition. He left. He was a cavalry subaltern in India in the 1890s and, and left India before the end of the 19th century for the very last time and uh, at the age of 25 and never set foot in uh, in or not, 24, I think. Uh, uh, he never set foot in India again, but continued to believe himself to be the greatest expert on India. He had the utmost contempt for what he called the foul race of Hindus. Uh, and during the Second War, he said that they had only survived because of their uh, rate of reproduction. And and he said things uh, uh, which were really quite intolerable about, horrible about Indians. And also he used every known racist epithet or um, terms we don't use anymore about Africans and Chinese and 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 and, and, and all non-white races. And he con- continually said, um, expressed this disdain for non-white peoples i mean he could he could be he could be benevolent in the sense that he on, on several occasions expressed indignation at, at um at the, at the killings for example of, 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 of black africans by settlers um but it was always a paternal uh, benevolence i mean he never for a single moment thought that uh, that Indians, let alone Africans, were capable of self-government. So what, in your opinion, are the chief dangers presented by modern Britain's preoccupation with Churchill? How has our quote-unquote Churchillism shaped the nation over the past 30 years? Of course, Churchillism and the myth of 1940 or the legend of 1940 have given us an altogether exaggerated position of our importance in the world, and we haven't come to terms we, we we can perfectly well take pride in what this country did 
75 years ago, and should do. But, but that is not the same thing. This continuing idea that England is the best of everything. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Then Churchill's specific prophecies or recommendations uh, show that he was complete, just completely wrong about military and naval matters. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. You also write that Churchill's often cast as, as a man who saw it all coming in 1939. And, and as a consequence from Korea to Suez to Iraq, successive generations of politicians have asked themselves, what would, it, what would Winston do if, in, in, this, uh, in this instance? I mean, but isn't that a little... F- unfair on Churchill himself. I mean, was he not just reacting to very particular incidents that he saw unfolding around him? No, it's not unfair to Churchill. I'll tell you why. Because um, his, his, his legend rests not only on the summer of 1940, but on the years before the war, when he preached resistance to Germany and rearmament. Um, but when you scrutinize what Churchill said in the pre-war years, he was either stating the obvious or he was simply wrong. I mean, he, when he said that Germany was seeking to become once again the dominant power in Europe, he was saying something that everybody knew. Um, Neville Chamberlain knew that as well, but Chamberlain, and, uh, who may well certainly was deceived by Hitler. But Chamberlain's own motives seemed to be perfectly respectable and decent. That was, he was trying to avoid a war which, when it came, killed 50 million people. Um, Then Churchill's specific 
prophecies or recommendations uh, showed that he was completely, just completely wrong about military and naval matters. He said that the, the tank had had its day and would play no further part in warfare. He said that the submarine no longer offered any serious threat. This was 1938, uh, and much else besides. And all his warnings about German rearmament in, in the late 1930s concerned air power, because Churchill, and it must be said, he was uh, not alone. In fact, everyone thought this. Everyone in this country was um, obsessed by the thought that after all, London had been bombed in the Great War. And our country seemed so vulnerable to obliteration by German bombing. Um, and in, when the war came, indeed, we were bombed, not only London, but Bristol, where you are, and Bath, where I am. Churchill's answer was that there was no defense against bombers. It was, it was Baldwin who said the bomber will always get through and was derided by everyone ever since. Uh, but uh, Churchill said much the same. He said that, that, that London would be uh, a charnel house within days of the beginning of a war. He, he obviously didn't foresee the revolution and air war that came with fast single-engine fighters like the Spitfire and Hurricane, or even, almost more importantly, with radar. But, but uh, he, he just got it wrong. And, and, and more, more to the point, Churchill never advocated before the war the only two things which might actually have had any effect on Hitler, that is to say, an, a formal alliance with France and conscription to raise a large British army. And he didn't realize that the real threat from Germany did not come from the Luftwaffe. Uh, it came from the terrifying uh, expansion of the Wehrmacht, which became the most uh, formidable as well as murderous army in history and conquered all of Europe, but didn't conquer England. Now, such was, was his legend in the post-war years that, as you point out in the book, Churchill was even invoked by, of all people, Fidel Castro. I mean, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit, please. Well, it's quite funny the way that Churchill became all things to all people. I mean, there are two examples of not only was he all from, from John Kennedy onwards in 1961 in his inaugural speech. Kennedy had made much during the presidential election in 1960 of having of having met Churchill 20 years earlier when he was a young man in England. And, and uh, American presidents have never stopped invoking Churchill ever since then, Ronald Reagan and especially George W. Bush. Um, but but the, uh, the most surprising people uh, can also invoke Churchill. I mean, when Fidel Castro was visiting New York in 1961 for the United Nations General Assembly, uh, by which time his, he, his, he, you could always go to New York for the UN, even if you were on the brink of war with the United States. And he said he'd been reading the Second World War by Sir Winston Churchill, had been inspired by the story of a little island heroically resisting a, 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 a bullying, much larger continental neighbour, which is really quite, almost amusing. Churchill 
built his reputation really after the, during and after the war as the man who saw it all coming and who had uh, preached against Munich and appeasement and Chamberlain. But if you watch what has happened, every single time in my lifetime when politicians or generals have invoked uh, the, the aura of Churchill and using Munich and appeasement and Chamberlain as curses, every time it has led to disaster. In Korea, in the Suez uh, expedition in 1956, which was the work of people like well, Sir Anthony Eden was prime minister, who himself had resigned from the government in 1938 in the opposition to appeasement. And, and he saw quite wrongly Colonel Nasser of Egypt as a new Hitler. Then uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, stepped up the American war in Vietnam because he said he didn't want to be seen as another Chamberlain appeasing the enemy. And then all the way through to Iraq, when Churchill was practically held up aloft as, as the invasion took place. And uh, it, it is quite remarkable that in, that in all these cases, uh, the, the results have been calamitous. Now, what inspires you to write this book? I mean, after all, this is a, a, a pretty crowded field, isn't it? There, there are no shortages of biographies on Churchill. And you must have realised when you were writing the book that, you know, it, it would be regarded in some people's eyes as quite controversial. Why did you think this is something you had to write now? Well, because I I wanted to, to, to get to grips with Churchill and come to terms with him myself, as I've, as, as I've said. And you mentioned that I... I, I describe how I saw Churchill in 1963. I was, I'm now an old man. I was born at the very end of 1945. And I grew up in the age of Churchill. You know, he returned to power in 1951. His Annus Mirabilis was 1953, which I remember as a little boy, um, the year of the coronation, the year Churchill received the... Nobel Prize for Literature of the year he was made a Knight of the Garter. And, um, and, 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 and newspapers and boys' comics called it the New Elizabethan Age. But in a sense, it was also the age of Churchill. And uh, Churchill was completely inescapable, uh, um, along with the war in whose shadow we lived. And uh, it, I was just trying to make my own reckoning with Churchill, if you like. Um, I don't, but incidentally, I don't want to see the statue in Parliament Square removed. I'm not particularly keen on um, pulling down statues and renaming every... Um, I, mean, I don't think the Churchill College of Cambridge will be renamed, but there have been plenty of places in America that have been. Um, I'm, not, I'm not in favour of that, that kind of attempt to, to rewrite history. But I am in favour of what the Germans call Vergangenheitsbewältigung, uh, which is coming to terms with the past or making a reckoning with the past. And in my humble way, that's what I've tried to do with this book. Now, you, you, you obviously had certain uh, preconceptions of Churchill when you started working on this book, as would any biographer. I mean, how did your view of him change as, as you know, your research proceeded and as you started writing the book? Well, my view of him didn't... I'm not sure how much my view of him changed. In one, some respects, I 
formed a clearer picture. I mean, it wasn't clear to me. The book has taken me far too long to write, I should say, but it wasn't clear to me when I started that um, Churchill understood so little of the nature of modern war. And this this was an important factor of the the story of the Second World War. He, he, He continually said this is not a war of great armies fighting uh, mighty battles with um, millions of shells. He said that in February 1941, and that was exactly what it was, or just about to become. Because, of course, one thing we have come, I'm not the first to say this, military historians have been saying, my generation grew, grew up thinking we won the war. Our brave lads, the Tommies, not Hitler for six, But, of course, Hitler was defeated by the Red Army. He wasn't defeated by the British Army. He wasn't even defeated by the so-called English-speaking peoples and the Western Alliance. The overwhelming amount of fighting uh, in the war um, was done on the Eastern Front. And quite apart from comparing Western casualties with Russian casualties, uh, nearly nine out of ten of the German soldiers who died in that war were killed on the Eastern Front. And that tells you where the war was decided. And Churchill then complained about uh, the Iron Curtain in 1946, the Iron Curtain which has fallen across Europe. But but nobody alive bore more responsibility for that than he he himself. He he had um, decided to fight on in 1940, rightly. He embraced Stalin as an ally rhetorically in 1941, physically in 1942. He dragged his feet as long as he could about a Western invasion of northern France, which was the only real contribution the Allies could make, the Western Allies could make, to defeating Germany. And the result was that for for three years, almost all the fighting was done by the Russians. And and the uh, fact that Stalin ended up in control of half of Europe was a direct consequence of Churchill's own policies. How do you think he'll be remembered in another, say, half a century? And and how would you hope he'd be remembered? I hope. I don't know how he'll be remembered. There's no point in speculating how he'll be remembered in half a century. Uh, our view of history changes so much and so so often. But I, I hope he will be remembered as a, an exceptional uh, and entirely remarkable man who played a a, a vital personal role in changing the course of history Um, at one simply crucial juncture. And he should be remembered with gratitude for that ever after. But that is not to make him uh, a superhuman hero, and still less does it make him uh, an all-knowing, all-wise oracle who should be continually consulted and invoked. But do you think, and I know you say we can't predict the future, but do you think there's every chance that we'll still be talking about him quite a lot in, in a few decades' time? Yes, I mean, I hope I hope that in a few decades' time we aren't as obsessed with the war as we still are. I mean, it is a very strange phenomenon in this country, which goes back to something you asked me earlier, that, that this continual outpouring of books... Um, about the Second World War. There's another one arrived on my desk the other day. Uh, it, 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 some of them 
are good, some of them are very bad. It's, this is a, a, a category someone unkindly called warnography. But you've only got to look at the bookshops and the bestseller lists. And if you go into an ordinary newsagent, you will see a rack of magazines on World War II and on Churchill. I mean, it, 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 this, is, this is 75 years since the war, six years since the war ended. Um, and uh, our obsession with the war is deeply unhealthy. I mean, we, are, we, we are now a, 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 a minor power and um, a perfectly happy country in some ways, if not in all ways. And we just need to come to terms with, we should express, we should be proud of what we did in 1940 and grateful for Churchill for what he did. But uh, we, we must... Uh, I think after after 80 years, it might be time to move on. <laughs> that was Geoffrey Wheatcroft. Churchill's Shadow, An Astonishing Life and a Dangerous Legacy, was published by Bodley Head in August. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 